0: Blog Talk Radio Blog Talk Radio
1: At the National Archives and Beyond Blog Talk Radio. This is your host, Bernice Alexander Bennett, and I want to welcome the callers and chatters to Research at the National Archives and Beyond. This show will provide individuals interested in genealogy and history an opportunity to listen, learn, and take action. If you have logged in as a guest and you wish to participate in the chat, you can sign in through your Facebook account or Blog Talk Radio. I will also open the lines in the second half of the show so that you can ask questions or make a comment. Following the show, you can continue this discussion on the Genealogy and History Forum of AfroGenius.com and research at the National Archives and Beyond Facebook page. In fact, Please like both pages. Tonight's show is very intriguing. The show is entitled The Black Russian, and we have Dr. Alexandra, excuse me, Dr. Vladimir Alexandrov as our special guest. He is the BE Benzinger Professor of Slavic Languages and Literature and Acting Chair of the Slavic Department of Yale University. Now, Vladimir will explore the process of researching and writing this very compelling story about Frederick Bruce Thomas, who was born in 1872 to former slaves and spent his youth on his family's farm in Mississippi. Now, I'm not going to go through all of the details of the show because I am just so excited about this book that I really want to bring our special guest on tonight. So, Vladimir, welcome to Research at the National Archives and Beyond.
2: Thank you very much, Bernice. I'm delighted to be here.
1: Well, thank you so much for joining me. Well, let's just start at the beginning, because when I started reading your book, the first question I had was, what prompted you to write a book about Frederick Bruce Thomas?
2: Well, you know, it was an accident, but it was an accident that changed my life. I was reading the memoirs of a Russian singer, Alexander Vertinsky, who was very popular at the end of the First World War. Uh, and he was describing how he escaped in 1920 from the south of Russia to get away from the Bolsheviks and landed in Constantinople, which was under the control of the Allies at that time, the city that we now call Istanbul. Yeah. And then he said the following thing I be- in, in Russian, but obviously translated, I began to perform in the entertainment garden of our famous Moscow Negro, Fyodor Fyodorovich Thomas, the owner of the famous Maxim in Moscow. That sentence Mm -hmm. so surprised me that I remember that I closed the book and put it down because I had never heard of any famous black people in Russia at that early time in the 20th century.
0: Mm -hmm. In fact,
2: I knew that there were very few black people in Russia prior to the 20th century no matter how far back you went. So that intrigued me, and I began to dig. And one thing led to another, and I was able to accumulate a lot of information about this unusual man that uh, the singer had referred to.
1: Wow. So when you're beginning to dig, I mean, this is something that you know, all genealogists are into, digging and finding sources. Where did you start?
2: I started with libraries. Well, actually, you know, what I did first is probably what everybody does when they discover a new fact that they want to learn something more about. I Googled the information that I had, and okay. nothing came up. <laughs> uh-huh. So I used the Russian search engine, and I entered the Russian information, the name Fyodor Fyodorovich Thomas, because I didn't even know that the man in question had originally come from the United States at that point. Okay. And what came up when I used the Russian search engine was the same sentence from the same Russian singer that had gotten me started, so I started looking in uh, library sources for books that dealt with the history of Black people in Russia. Um, I looked for the history of um, Russians in Istanbul at this time in the early twentieth century. Uh, I would occasionally find, you know, a little strand of information someplace in the book. Uh, But the big breakthrough for me came when I started working in the National Archives in Washington, D.C. Okay. And it began with my finding um, passport applications that this man had filed when he was in Western Europe in the end of the 19th century and wanted to travel around. And so it was from that kind of beginning that i began to understand how i would need to search for information about him later on and i found in the end most of my information in the national archives in college park maryland but also in archives and libraries in england in france in russia and in turkey
1: so he certainly left footprints all over the place if you went to all of those different uh... places and yeah, found and was, information on him.
2: It was my good fortune that he left a paper trail, and the paper trail that he left was due mostly to the fact that when he was in Constantinople or Istanbul, and he arrived there from Russia in 1919, and he lived there until he died there in 1928, most of the paperwork was due to the fact that he was in trouble at times okay. with uh, the American authorities at the American Consulate General in Istanbul. Uh-huh. And it was my terrific good fortune that this was all recorded in the uh, files and archives of the American Consulate General. And all of that paperwork that had been produced you know, 80 years before, halfway around the world, wound up being neatly stored and available for researchers like me in College Park, Maryland, outside of Washington.
1: Amazing. I hope the chatters and and the listeners uh, understand that that's an excellent resource, the National Archives. And just uh, imagine that you found this stuff neatly stored right there in College Park, Maryland.
2: There were some adventures uh, involved in that, too, that maybe I can uh, tell you about. Oh, sure! So that you know there the archives are vast. I don't know how many hundreds of miles of shelf feet of materials they have, and the system of organization is one that you have to learn. So when I was beginning my research, I was pointed to a card catalog by the helpful archivists who are there to help people like us, and told, "Look through this card catalog, you might find something, and I found a card on which was written, uh, Thomas, comma, Frederick Bruce, Death of in Constantinople, 1928. Well, this is obviously something that really got me excited, because it was a reference to the end of my subject's life in Constantinople, and I assumed that whatever this card was referring to would be really important. And yes. there was a code number, a code number. So I went to the archivists for help asking them, where are these documents that are referred to in this card? It was fortunate that one of the archivists there took an interest in this matter. And over the course of several days, when he had time, he would look for where these documents might be. At the end of the third day, he basically gave up, and he said, you know, I can't find any trace of this stuff. It's possible that the card refers to documents that used to exist and that were destroyed a safe space some years ago so I shrugged and you know working on other things for a few more days went home but I didn't give up and this is where I think I learned a really valuable lesson that anybody who's doing genealogical research could use you can't make your own luck from scratch
0: but you can <laughs> certainly
2: augment it you know you can you can help it along and the way I helped luck along in my case was by not giving up and by casting my research net as widely as possible. So even though this archivist, this professional archivist, told me it's not likely that anything has been preserved in the archives, when I got home, I continued to dig on the National Archives webpage, which is a vast labyrinth. You know, you go from one link to another, you go to a third link, you wind up with a PDF file of 500 pages listing all kinds of State Department documents, And I kept leafing through these over the course of several weeks until, all of a sudden, I came to a small entry that had the same prefix number as was on that card that had gotten me started. And it said that this was, the name of it was, the cutter file for special files that were set aside because they were so revealing about various issues pertaining to Americans abroad. So when I went back to College Park, I went back to the archivists. said, this card that I found is indicating the cutter file. Can you find that for me? And within two hours, they brought me over 100 pages of documents in files pertaining to Frederick Bruce Thomas and his family that were the turning point in my attempt to reconstruct his life. You know, among the other incredibly valuable things that were in those files, was a seven-page typed summary of his life that he had dictated to an American consular official in Constantinople in 1924. And that told me about where he was from in Mississippi. It told me the name of the planters who had owned his parents when they were still slaves. It told me how he moved to Memphis, how he went to Chicago and New York, and everything that was in that narrative of his I was able to verify, so that was an absolute turning point in my attempt to find the
1: man Wow, and i mean how how amazing that you were able to find this and the cutter file. This is something new that I'm hearing of, uh but a hundred pages of documentation, and he actually <laughs> dictated i mean he had his life well, story there. Wow.
2: Well, because I said that he he got into various kinds of trouble when he was in Constantinople, and one of the forms of trouble was that because of uh, the racism of the white American diplomats at the consulate general, uh, they refused to recognize him as an American. You know, everybody else who had met him uh, recognized that he could only have come from the South because of his appearance and the way he spoke English. He didn't Mm -hmm. have any documents. He no longer had any documents proving that he had lived the first part of his life in Mississippi. And so, you know, it's clear that it was out of pure racism that the American diplomats denied him recognition as an American citizen. This became a problem in 1923 in Turkey uh, when Frederick needed to find some kind of legal protection from some government entity because of the changes in Turkey that were then going on. And so he found a a sympathetic official at the consulate general to whom he dictated the facts of his life. And that guy had this stuff typed up, and it was filed away in the National Archives for the last 80-plus years, and nobody had looked at it. The other thing that's amazing for me is that some of these files were uh, shrink-wrapped in plastic. And that was when the National Archives moved to College Park about 20 years ago.
1: Yes, and they yes. And
2: they wrapped them in plastic so that they wouldn't get damaged when they were being moved. So what this meant was that ever since they were moved from Pennsylvania Avenue to College Park, Maryland, nobody had looked at them until I was lucky enough to discover that I needed to see them.
1: Well, I guess you were meant to write this story. And, in fact, when did you decide that it was time for you to to write a book?
2: Well, that was the tipping point. You know, finding those dossiers that I just described uh, was really the tipping point because I had found, by looking in old newspapers um, from the late 19-teens and 1920s, references to uh, this man, I, I mentioned that I had found passport applications that he had made. I found a few uh, brief memoirs of him from his life in Moscow uh, prior to 1918, but it was all really very sketchy. And only when I found those dossiers did I learn where he was from. So when he said that he was from Friars Point, Mississippi, and there's an amusing detail in all this too, because the way it was transcribed by the American consular official, was Friar's Point, Uh without the R, you know, a southern kind of pronunciation. And so I started looking at maps of Mississippi, and I said, it's got to be Friar's Point, you know, which I know now, of course, is in Cahoma County in a northwestern corner. It's a river town. And so uh, with that information, I was able to start looking in Cahoma County, uh, I there's a museum, the North Delta Museum in Friars Point that I contacted, and the woman who runs it was very helpful to me. And then I found out from her that the place to look in the county courthouse, which is in Clarksdale, Mississippi, which is now the county seat. And so I called them up, and I said, you know, I'm looking for somebody who's from the area. Do you have records that I could come and look at? And they said yes. And there was also a local... Um, amateur, serious amateur historian that I called on the advice of various people uh, who proved to be really very helpful to me because she loves local history and uh, took a look at the holdings of the county uh, courthouse. And it was her encouragement that led me to actually go down there. And when I started looking at the records myself, I found several dozen documents pertaining to my uh, subject's families land holdings. You know, that's how I found out that they were a very prominent family in the black community in coahoma County following uh, 1869 because they became landowners, which is very unusual. So, you know, one thing leads to another. Um,
1: yes, yes, and, and it's good because you are basically following each of those clues that are uh, being presented to you. So tell us a, a little but just help people understand where did Frederick come from? I know you said Cahoma County, uh, Mississippi, and that you discovered that his parents were landowners, but tell us more about his family.
2: Yeah, they were remarkable people, and the fact that Thomas became rich and famous twice in his life, I think, is due to the influence of his parents, clearly, and I'll mention a couple of things that made them completely unusual and remarkable people. The first was, as I've been alluding to it, that in 1869, uh, his father and uh, his mother were able to buy a farm at auction for a very low price, because land prices were very depressed shortly after the Civil War in the South. Um, this immediately put the Thomas family into a tiny minority uh, in the black community, because although the black population of Cahoma County was something like 75% of of the population at that time, Uh, black people owned uh, a tiny percentage of all the land, most of which was in the hands of rich white planters. So um, they got this land for a very low price, and within a year, according to the uh, federal census records, they were able to multiply their investment hundreds of times over, in terms of the value of the crops that they had raised and what the value of the farm was. So they immediately became economic, uh, members of the economic elite in Kahoma County. The okay. other thing that they did was, a decade later, they donated, basically, they sold it for a dollar, uh, three-quarters of an acre of land on their farm to found an AME church. This is very likely only the second AME church in all of Cahoma County because the mother church, the Bethel church, was in Friars Point. And so this shows a real commitment to the local black community because, you know, as you know, uh, these kinds of churches were not just places of worship. They were also, very importantly, schools, uh, places for social and political gathering. And the 1880 federal census indicates that Frederick, my subject, uh, had been to school, and so it's very likely that he went to the school that was held in the AME chapel that his parents had arranged to have built on their land in 1879. Uh So uh, those are two signs of how distinctive they were. But as you can imagine, if a black family in the South at this time becomes prominent because of its economic success and because of its commitment to the local black community, they're going to have to pay a price for it, which is what happened when Mm -hmm. a rich white planter resented their success and decided to steal their farm from them. And, you know, here's where the family showed their mettle again. Because rather than acquiesce to the white power structure and give up, they took the man to court. You know, a mm-hmm. black family took a rich white planter to court. And even more amazing was that they won on the local Oklahoma County level. Now, this wasn't because uh, the local courthouse believed in truth above all else. I think it was probably due to the fact that the Thomas family had a lawyer who was a political opponent of
0: mm-hmm. the white
2: planter's lawyer. And mm-hmm. so the lawyers fought it out. And the Thomases were briefly the beneficiaries of this. But, of course, the white planter wasn't about to give up. Anyway, I'm going into too much uh, detail. This this resulted in a series, uh, in a long sequence of court battles that went all the way to the Mississippi State Supreme Court. And the Thomas family, at some point, this is by now 1890, decided that it would be prudent to get out of harm's way, because Mississippi had become by now the lynchingest state in the Union. And so they abandoned, for the time being, the court process that was still being fought out and went to Memphis, where they tried to start a new life. But Mm -hmm. it's this kind of commitment to their local community. It's this kind of imagination that the Thomas family showed, the kind of resilience that they had are all traits that their son, my subject, Frederick, inherited, because when he became a big businessman in Moscow and then in Istanbul, he behaved in the same way.
1: Yes, and they they basically were setting the foundation for him.
2: I think so, yeah, very much so. And then, you know, he was an innovator for the rest of his life, because when he left the South in 1890 and went to Chicago first and then to the New York area, This was very unusual for a young black man at that time. You know, young black men who had grown up on farms in the south were not heading north in those days. They went to southern cities. The Great Migration was still decades away. So that was very uh, innovative on Frederick's uh, part. You know, Chicago and New York had very small black populations in those days, somewhere on the order of 1 to 2%. So that was one... uh, very kind of brave um, and path-breaking thing that he did. And then even more surprising is that he went to Europe in 1894, which Mm was also decades before people uh, like Josephine Baker, for example, went to Europe, which was only after the First World War decades in the future. That's
1: right. That's right. So So in 1894, uh, he's already heading to, he's there, he's in Europe. Is that right?
2: That's right. Yeah, he Uh goes to Europe and he never comes back. Uh, From 1894 to 1899, he lives in Western Europe. He learns French fluently. He speaks it like a Parisian. He picks up uh, a fair amount of German. He learns some Italian. And he has skills that are portable. He has a profession that he can practice anywhere, which is that he's a waiter and a valet. And Mm -hmm. he's so good at this that he even gets appointed as head waiter in French Riviera resorts during the summer, which means that he's a foreigner, but he's put in charge of native French and Italian waiters in the south of France uh, in fancy resorts. And this is what leads to his catching um, the attention of a rich Russian nobleman who is traveling in the south of uh, france who takes him with him to russia
1: wow well we're going to stop because this is such an intriguing story take a quick break come back and continue this discussion quick break okay All of my shows are available as a podcast immediately after the broadcast and can be downloaded from iTunes, as well as Blog Talk Radio. Now, you have been listening to Vladimir Alexandrov, the author of The Black Russian. Now, he has given us a brief overview of his research on Frederick Bruce Thomas, who was born in 1872 to former slaves and spent his youth on his family's farm in Mississippi. He left the South working as a waiter and a valet, and he went to Chicago and Brooklyn, and then he went to London and then traveled throughout Europe and decided to go to Russia in 1899. So, Vladimir, tell us more about Frederick, and his, his journey, what happened to him in his life abroad?
2: Yeah, you know, um, he was obviously a very talented man, a very intelligent man. Uh, and when he got to Russia, what was really very striking was that he discovered it was a colorblind society. Western Europe in those days, uh, England, France, especially did not discriminate against black people either. But in Russia, black people were virtually unknown. Uh, My estimate is that in Moscow around 1900, in other words, in a city with a population of over a million people, there were no more than maybe a dozen black people from anywhere in the world living there at that time. So Mm -hmm. there was no bias against him at all. And since he was skilled at what he did as a waiter, he very quickly began to rise through the ranks. He sort of worked his way up from the restaurant floor. He began as a waiter. He became a head waiter. Then he became the assistant to the owner of one of the fanciest restaurants in the entire Russian empire. And he made so much money in tips because he was so good at what he did that he was able to invest it with a couple of Russian partners, in a fancy property in the center of Moscow that had gotten uh, onto hard times. They turned it around within a year, and now we're talking about 1912. Each one of them, each one of the partners, including Thomas, cleared a million dollars in today's money. After the first season of running this entertainment garden that had been on hard times and that they resurrected, and from then on, uh, his star kept climbing. Now, he didn't give up on a personal life. He married um, a young German woman in uh, 1901. They had three very handsome children. You know, I found pictures of them in the National Archives as well. Uh, when she died from pneumonia, which was a dreadful uh, thing that killed a lot of people in those days, he remarried. He married the family's nanny. Uh, I think that was a marriage of convenience, not of genuine love, because almost simultaneously with marrying her, he began an affair with a beautiful young uh, German singer and dancer who had performed on one of his stages, a woman who uh, bore two of his sons, and who subsequently became his very loyal uh, third wife. So his life, in general, personally and professionally, was constantly improving. And simultaneously with that, the life of the country that had adopted him, Russia, and that he had adopted, kept declining, however. You know, mm-hmm. This was a very difficult time in Russia. There were strikes, there were political um, demonstrations. There was unrest. There were assassinations. There was a revolution in 1905. When the First World War began in 1914, uh, things got more and more difficult in Russia. There were shortages. Lots of people were killed, obviously, on the front. The political situation became unstable, and it all blew up with the two revolutions of 1917. Frederick wrote out the first revolution. He managed to adapt because it wasn't as radical as what was coming. But when the Bolsheviks took over in November of 1918, he suddenly sort of woke up to discover that he was on the wrong side of history.
0: Uh-huh.
2: The Bolsheviks didn't care that he had been an oppressed black man in the United States. The only thing that mattered to them is that he was rich.
0: Was he was rich. A class yes. Enemy. <laughs> yes. 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 And
2: so he had to run for his life. Uh, which he did in the summer of 1918, because if he had stayed in Bolshevik Russia, he would have been killed. He would have been shot. Uh-huh. And he found out that he was on a list of people to be arrested, and rather than take his chances, he escaped. Uh, he was able to escape to the south of Russia, which was then in German hands for various reasons. In other words, out of, out of um, the reach of the Bolsheviks with most of his family. He also happened to have property there, because by this point, by the very end of the Russian Empire, he was a multimillionaire, uh, literally, in today's money. He owned property in central Moscow. He had a villa in the south of Russia on the Black Sea in the city of Odessa. And so he thought, like like other people did, that they would be able to ride out this Bolshevik storm in Russia. And then when the Bolsheviks disappeared... Everybody would be able to go back to their good lives that they had before. Well, it didn't happen. The Bolsheviks didn't disappear, and Frederick had to escape them again when they started approaching the south of Russia, and that's when he went to Istanbul. Mm -hmm. Um, There he had to go through uh, rags-to-riches life again because all of his property was in Russia. He arrived in Istanbul with $25 to his name, as he remembered. He had to start from scratch you know, with loans from money lenders and so on to get a business going. And he managed to overcome incredible incredible obstacles and uh, to become the most successful nightclub owner in that part of the world, basically the eastern Mediterranean, so that when tourists came to Istanbul in the 1920s, the mid-1920s, his nightclub was one of the must Visit places in the city. It had become so famous. That's also when he imported jazz to Turkey, which caught on there as rapidly as it did everywhere in the world. And he actually became known as the Sultan of Jazz because of how he had popularized this form of American, uh, black American music in Istanbul as well. So that's a kind of a brief sketch of his life, which unfortunately ends. Tragically, for various reasons, but um, you know, it was quite a ride when he um, was on his role.
1: Yes, it does sound like he had quite a life and quite a ride, as you said, when he was on his role. Now, as you are telling this story, um, and and of course, I've I've read the book, which is extremely intriguing. It's, it, it is just amazing. How did the Americans react to him, or if, if he encountered Americans, how would they react to him? Uh, just tell us about that.
2: Yeah, no, it's, it's a really interesting question. Um, I mentioned that in England and in France in the 1890s, in other words, I'm talking about 1895, 1896, seven, and so on, uh, there was no bias against black people. The British were racist, but not against black people. The only people in England, when Frederick was there, who objected to black people were visiting American tourists.
0: Uh-huh. And so
2: you would you would find letters to the editor in newspapers back home in the Midwest or somewhere, and I found these, where some American white tourists who had been to London in eighteen ninety five would write to the local newspaper editor to express shock at the fact that in London, say, at some famous restaurant, this tourist had seen a black man and a white woman having dinner and that nobody was upset. (laughs) So the only people who were upset by uh, black people in Western Europe at this time were visiting Americans who basically brought their racism with them in their luggage. Uh, Mm -hmm. In Russia, as I mentioned, there was no bias against black people. I mean, Russia was not uh, you know, kind of a, a paradise for everyone. It was very anti-Semitic. But yeah. at least it wasn't, it wasn't um, racist in the sense of uh, skin color.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
2: The only Americans that Frederick dealt with in Moscow were either representatives of the consulate in Moscow uh, or visiting tourists. And I found some really wonderful reactions uh, by american tourists who went to this fancy place in moscow that everybody wanted to go to to have a good time an entertainment garden with shows and theaters and restaurants and they would be shocked almost speechless to discover that it was owned by this well-dressed you know diamond bedecked because by this point thomas was rich a black american who would speak to them in American English, and asked them, so how's Chicago now? I used to work there kind of thing. And they would write about this when <laughs> they got back to Chicago as well.
1: Yes, like an imagine their reaction.
2: Yeah, you know, they, they would say, it's amazing. <laughs> Who would have believed that this would be possible? But his dealings with Americans in Russia were limited. The problem was when he got to Istanbul, because the country was in turmoil, the city that he was in, was occupied by foreign uh, powers, including the Americans, and uh, he needed to find some kind of protection for himself. Uh The Russia that he had become a citizen of had stopped to exist, right? There was no more Russia. It was now the Soviet Union. So he couldn't get anywhere with his uh, Russian identity, so he decided to try to get protection from the Americans, and that's when American racism uh, came back, uh, you know, the long arm reached all the way from the United States to Turkey and constantly gave him a hard time.
0: Uh-huh, uh, the uh-huh.
2: diplomats that he went to asking to be recognized, asking to be given a, a passport as an American, uh, caused him all kinds of grief and problems. And in the end, they refused to give him an American passport. Uh, you know, this involved the diplomats in Istanbul being in touch with the State Department in Washington, D.C. The State Department was racist as well, and I found documents indicating that the officials in the State Department didn't want to help Thomas because he was black. And so this contributed to the forces that, in the end, despite all of the fighting that Thomas put up, destroyed him.
1: It destroyed because him. It
2: came Well, it came down to the fact that, you know, he was stateless. He was a man without a country, papers proving where he belonged in a new country that was born in Turkey in 1923 when the Turks had, uh, when their republic came into existence. The Mm -hmm. Americans had washed their hands of him. The, you know, the Russia that he had belonged to had ceased to exist. He didn't want anything to do with the Bolshevik Soviet Union because if he had gone back there, they would have arrested him. And so he was left stateless, and that meant he didn't have a government to protect him. He tried to get Turkish citizenship, but the Turks weren't interested in having foreigners become citizens. And so he Mm -hmm. managed for a number of years to succeed, but then uh, when he got into financial difficulties, he had nowhere to turn for protection, and that's what resulted in his losing everything he had built up from scratch in Turkey, being imprisoned for his debts, and falling ill and dying, basically, as a result of the illness that he had contracted in prison. So he died in 1928. And he was so uh, poor by this point that local Catholic nuns took him in as a charity case. He died in their hospital, and he was buried uh, in the Catholic cemetery in Istanbul, in the Fariköy district. Uh, I found... Um, records at that cemetery, which still exists, indicating that he was buried there, but there was no money for a tombstone, so I could go to the cemetery and I could photograph it, but I didn't know where he had been buried. There was no marker.
1: No marker. And they actually, gave him.
2: Yeah, they gave him a funeral service in the local um, Catholic cathedral, which also still exists, and where I also went and where I found in their record books the date of the um, funeral service that he had been given uh and so that's how this man you know who was like a, a comet streaking across the sky in terms of the spectacular achievements that he had uh, made uh ended in the end
1: yes but you know one of the things that you you mentioned also was that he did have uh three wives and 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 was it five children
2: that's right a total of uh three wives not simultaneously but in sequence yes. <laughs> and He did have five children, and I did my best to trace the lives of all of them. And, you know, the funny thing is that I was able, most of them had difficult lives when he died. Um, But one of his uh, children, his oldest son, Michael, or Mikhail, as he was known in Russia, because he was born in Moscow in 1905, uh, managed to make it, after all kinds of adventures, to Paris before the Second World War. And had a family there. And I met after I found him, um, Michael's son, in other words, Frederick Bruce Thomas's grandson in Paris.
1: grandson. yes,
2: that's right, and i've i've been I've met him a number of times. We've talked, we've corresponded, uh, and that was also a remarkable twist in the search for information. Uh, yeah, you mentioned, genealogical research. Well, when I first met the grandson in Paris, who was very surprised when I surfaced in his life because he didn't know that anybody was researching his grandfather's life, the grandson was very hospitable to me. He was very welcoming, um, very nice man, and he began to tell me the story of his grandfather's life.
0: Mm -hmm. And
2: with, with the grandson's permission, I recorded all of this on a little device, because this was very early during my research. And uh then I went away and started to do my own serious research for the better part of a year. And I discovered that a lot, in fact, most of what the grandson told me was sheer invention. Oh no. Yeah. But you know, really fascinating invention. It was yeah, I said that there is definite evidence that Frederick Bruce Thomas is the son of former slaves in Mississippi. According to the grandson, who was telling me the family history as it had been passed down to him by his father, uh, Frederick was actually the son of a Native American chief in New Mexico.
0: <laughs>
2: no! <laughs> that he was, you know, he had mixed ancestry um, there was um, black and white as well as Native American but uh, that he really came from New Mexico. described how Frederick worked his way up from the restaurant floor in a way that really is quite remarkable, You know, working from the United States across Europe to Russia and becoming rich and famous. According to the grandson, his grandfather uh, became a smuggler in the South China Sea. Oh. And the way he got to Russia was by saving the life of a rich Russian in a Shanghai bar. Well, anyway, you know, it's, a lot of it is like this. So when I did my research and I found documents you know, proving what actually happened, I went back to see the grandson and I gave him copies of some of these documents and told him the story. And he was, of course, shocked and uh, disappointed because he had lived with a completely fanciful story about his grandfather in some regards. I mean, the fact that his grandfather became successful in Moscow and then in Constantinople the grandson knew, and he had that more or less right. But what was interesting was the early family history. And then, you know, I started to think about how would this have come about? Why would a family have generated this kind of, you know, a false past story about its origins? And that's when I came across some work that um, uh, Dr. Henry Lewis Gates Jr. has been doing on. Uh, black American genealogy, right? You know, he's been doing PBS series on this. He's a obviously a prominent researcher. And he's discovered that um, the idea that black Americans have roots in Native American societies uh, is far more widespread in family stories than it is supported by actual DNA analyses.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: So this is a, a fairly common story, uh, Dr. Gates has said, and the way he explains it makes perfect sense that it is less painful to imagine that your ancestors were free Native Americans than that they were enslaved Africans. Oh, so yes. I'm guessing that this is the same thing that applies to the Thomas family story. And I think that this uh, false history was generated by my subject's son, Mikhail, once he got to uh, Western Europe, uh, because the grandson couldn't have invented this. Uh, he simply reported to me what he had learned from his father.
0: So This was and another thing that made on. the whole...
2: Yeah, it made it so fascinating, you know, having to untangle uh, the truth from invention and the fact that you could find a grandson of this remarkable man alive in Paris now. Uh, all of that was part of the adventure of finding the information, and then the other adventure was trying to write it all up. So this was a, a very compelling thing. I said at the very outset that this chance discovery of a reference to Thomas changed my life. Well, it did, because what I did during the years I was researching the book and writing it was entirely unlike what I had done before.
1: Yes, and quite quite a journey. So if you had to give some tips, I mean, you, we have people in the chat room and people are, are listening uh, by phone, uh, about a journey such as yours, what kind of parting information would you give to them if they encounter a similar document?
2: <laughs> I think what you need to do is to use every conceivable source. Don't give up. Even the... Uh, kind of strand of information is worth trying to pursue Um, nowadays as a lot of people know it's a lot easier to do this kind of genealogical research because of Ancestry.com you can subscribe to their service you can get just endless amounts of information from them Uh, the American census records from the 18th century through uh, 1930 now, I think, are keywords searchable. Um, I'll give you an example. I wanted to find out w- how Frederick got to London. I knew it was by boat in 1894. So I was in the National Archives in London looking at ship registers, right lists of passengers mm-hmm. arriving from the United States and England, and I found him in one of those. That took me the better part of a day because I looked through you know, pages and pages of these long sheets of paper. Uh, six months after I spent all that time doing that in the National Archives in London, Ancestry.com uh, .com had scanned all that stuff. So now you can sit at home and, by entering the right name of the, of the person, find the same kind of thing in a matter of seconds. So uh, there's that. I was able to use online newspaper sources, you know, millions and millions of pages of American newspapers from all over the country are now also searchable in a way that they would never have been before. Um, and uh, asking for professionals' help. When I first showed up at the National Archives in, on Pennsylvania Avenue in Washington and then in College Park, I didn't know how the system there worked. It took a while to uh, figure it out.
1: And I did mm-hmm. that with the
2: help of the local archivists, who are there to to tell you, you know, to at least point you in the right direction, so that you can start digging.
0: That's so, right. Uh, so,
2: right. try to make your own luck by being diligent, never giving up, and casting your net as widely as possible. You never know what you're going to wind up pulling in.
1: You are so right. Well, this is such a fascinating story, and chatters, folks on the phone you will want to read this book, The Black Russian by Vladimir Alexandrov. Well, thank you so much for sharing this amazing journey with us. And I want everyone to just please remember your ancestors left footprints. Therefore, you should follow the clues that are presented to you. Through oral history, family records, and research at the National Archives and beyond. Now you can continue this discussion on the research at the National Archives and beyond and AfroGenius Facebook pages. And also remember to listen to the African Roots podcast with Angela Walton Raji on Friday and the Black ProGen Live hosted by Nika Soul Smith. For those of you traveling to Moscow, Russia, the Black Russian is now translated into Russian. And a book signing is scheduled on December 13th at 7 p.m., at the Dostoevsky Library. So thank you so much for joining research at the National Archives and Beyond Blog Talk Radio. This show is sponsored by your host, BB's Genealogy Research and Educational Services, LLC, and my website is com. I look forward to all of you Joining me next Thursday. This is your host, Bernice Alexandra Bennett. Good night, everyone.